episode three of the podcast series Noisemakers, presented by Salty Wave Blue. My name is Gabrielle Ahern and I'm a marine biologist and science writer. Mangrove trees' gnarled and bent appearance reflects the dynamic conditions that they live in. Not many plant species can survive such a harsh marine environment, but mangrove trees thrive. These salty forests are constantly exposed to the elements during low tide events and are inundated by salty water during high tide. These extreme conditions play to their favour and for many animals, mangroves are nurseries, shelter and food. In his paper, Blue Carbon, Knowledge Gaps, Critical Issues and Novel Approaches, Dr. Sebastian Thomas, a lecturer at the University of Melbourne, discusses the way blue carbon ecosystems are now being fast-tracked into the economic psyche of the world, and mangroves are now acknowledged as a major player. I spoke to Dr. Thomas, who discusses his paper and how mangroves will be a valuable investment for the future.
take coal out mostly. Now, when you dredge and can repeatedly dredge those those harbour ecosystems, then the, the carbon is constantly come out of the sediment into the water column and then eventually into the atmosphere. So that's what losing it. So, but, but that's a sort of scientific perspective, and and the, the that second point about the proxy that carbon represents is that if you can preserve and protect and restore those ecosystems, you do all this other stuff around it. So you provide. Um, habitat, spawning habitat for all kinds of invertebrates and fish. You provide places for, for, for animals to, to breed and those animals then effectively contribute to food security and other fisheries resources for human beings. You also provide um, coastal stabilisation to prevent erosion. You, you mangrove forests protect against storm damage. Um, so there are all these associated services that come with these ecosystems that we haven't been very good at recognising. I think for a long time climate finance initiatives like Blue Carbon as progenitors for preservation of the environment long term. For example, um, policies like NAMAS and RED uh, increase mitigation opportunities in developing countries. But do you think these policies are working quickly enough in Asian countries to stymie the progress of climate change, greenhouse gas emissions as predicted by scientists? Do I think the climate finance instruments are working effectively in developing countries yes. or fast enough, did you say? Yes, that's correct. The short, the short answer is, is, is no. Uh, the short answer is, and it does not restrict it to develop, developing countries, the short answer is that our climate mitigation strategies are, are not yet enough. One, one of the things that was really important about the Paris Agreement was that um, within that, the countries that have signed on to Paris have committed to not just regular reviews of, of their targets and pledges, um, and progress, but have committed to regularly um, increasing their pledges, if you like, um, increasing the levels of ambition, leave it how it's raised, uh, on a regular basis as they're able to do so. So part of what's important about the Paris Agreement is that we've said, okay, we're all going to do this, we're all going to do what we can do based on an individual uh, point of view by member states, but we're not only going to monitor and review our progress on a regular basis, Basis, but everybody is committed to increasing their levels of ambition regularly. So we're not yet getting there, but it's, there is there is a built-in mechanism to sort of keep pushing us towards a, a sustainable trajectory or the, the necessary trajectory. Okay. So when it comes to climate finance instruments like Red Plus, uh, the, NAMA, the nationally appropriate mitigation actions, you know, that's that's not so much a finance instrument. That's just um, how we do business going forward. What I'd say about things like Red Plus, uh, the sustainable development mechanism, which will evolve out of the clean development mechanism, things like the Green Climate Fund, um, these sorts of climate finance instruments I see as potential uh, potential mechanisms of of a 21st century economy. Now, we've had we've had the old economy, which is really about Extractive, extracting profit. So what capitalism has meant in the past is 
civilization and to prosper as a civilization, the question becomes not so much about how do we extract profit, but how do we create value. So if, if there is plenty of, there's all this money in the world, and we use instruments like the Green Climate Fund and Red Plus and so on, if we direct it in the right ways, then we can use those finance streams to create value. And that means create environmental value. So, and if we create environmental value, that's, that's going to reduce the costs of climate disasters and adaptation and all the rest of it. So there's, there's an obvious economic incentive to do that. But you're also then creating, using those funds like in Red Plus to do things like create value through food production, through education, through the empowerment of the women, all of these sorts of things. So I do, I do think that properly harnessed, Red Plus, the Green Climate Fund, the other financial instruments, are ways to help transform our economy to the sort of um, value creation approach that we need to have in the 21st century. Within Australia, um, we have a lot of development um, along infrastructure development along our coastlines. Do you think enough is being done to implement urban management plans that will protect coastal habitats like mangroves from coastal squeeze? In, in Australia, we have uh, a lot of our blue carbon resources in coastal areas. Um, the mangrove forests are, are largely protected. Um, the question is whether that changes if we try to open up, for example, Northern Australia. So there is this long-term priority to say, right, let's let's irrigate Northern Australia and let's turn this into, let's take all of these existing forests and make agriculture and you know make it a food bowl. If in coming decades those sorts of development processes continue and, and you take those areas of Australia that are undeveloped, like the north, we stand to lose, um, we stand to lose a lot of those blue carbon resources. It's also the case that all of those mangroves up there in the Northern Territory and North Queensland um, are incredibly rich ecosystems and valuable carbon stocks, um, but we don't know very much about them. In fact, it's just about a year ago, that there was a major die-off of 100,000 hectares of mangroves that suffered uh, effectively a bleaching event, roughly at the same time that the coral, the Great Barrier Reef was bleaching, um, because of the El Nino effect last summer. So everybody knew about the reef, and we know how much damage the reef has sustained, particularly in the northern third. But um, the fact that we, we lost 100,000 hectares of mangroves was not noticed by anybody. And yep. But we're not accounting for that. And so that means, you know, there's a whole lot of carbon that we're not including in our national inventory. But I think, I think that the big issue in Australia specifically, yes, coastal squeezes as development continues is, is an issue. Uh, but I think that arguably a greater issue is those vast areas that, that are undeveloped and that we don't see and we don't think about. And then secondly, the potential not only to lose them through climate change impacts, but if we do in coming decades start developing those, those undeveloped areas, then there's a lot to go. The other part of it is not so much mangroves, it's, as I mentioned before, it's things like coastal port development and the, and the ongoing dredging of seagrass habitats and so on. Given what you've just said to me about their environmental value. Do you think that blue carbon debate only increases the threats to the conservation of mangrove forests and other coastal habitats, given the amount of financing required for the restoration? Um, and in, for this, I refer to your paper where you mentioned that economic damages resulting from conversion can amount to between six and $42 billion per year US. 
that estimate is um, that's global, but that's extrapolated from a range of factors. So that includes things like when you convert mangroves to for coastal development, whether it's shrimp farming or, or ports or housing, um, you're going to lose fishery supply. So you're going to lose the habitat that, that provides um, fisheries stocks. You're going to potentially be more exposed to extreme weather events and they carry a lot of cost uh, in, in, in insurance costs. When in the case of Asia, where a lot of the, the mangroves are being converted into the fish and shrimp farming, what happens is that those conversion processes are attractive because when you have a mangrove forest, you have a very ecologically um, rich zone. So there's a lot of a lot of nutrients there. There's a lot of um, biological resources. And so when you then put in a fish farm or a shrimp farm, um, there's, there's plenty for them to eat. But it doesn't last. And so within five, six, seven years, then it's quite often the case that the, the nutrient value of those converted areas is gone. So you get five or seven years of, of, of a viable shrimp farm but then they, they just stop living. So there's no farming value out of it. So there's an opportunity cost that's gone. Basically, climate change is an accounting problem. You know, when, when people say coal is cheap, they're not including the costs of burning coal in terms of um, you know, rebuilding after disasters, in terms of public health, in terms of all of these other issues. If, and, and that's why we're talking about having a carbon price, because if you say it's a carbon price, then, then you, inter you bring in the costs that aren't being covered by the actual price. So blue carbon is kind of the same thing. If you can recognise the values uh, of mangrove forests and seagrasses and salt marsh estuaries, if you can recognise how important they are and how, and how valuable from it in an economic sense in terms of providing fishery stock, in terms of mitigating disaster costs, in terms of providing livelihoods for all kinds of people, then, then they become a good thing to preserve. So do you think Australia is on track in terms of its carbon sequestration actions and is blue Absolutely carbon... Not. Sorry? Absolutely not. Yeah. So uh, the, Australian, the Australian target for emissions reductions of 26 28% below 2005 levels um, is very unambitious uh, and the government points out that it's, it's ambitious per capita, in per capita terms, but um, you know, they're, they're cherry-picking the nicest number in the lot. The, the target that we have is is very unambitious. It's also the case that we're not going to meet it um, and that the, the, actual, uh, the actual pathway looks more like we'll be heading towards, I think the minority report from the Climate Change Authority said something around 11% increase. Now, this government, like I said, it's an accounting problem, climate change, so this, the government is fiddling around a lot with accounting to make it look like we're meeting targets and we're not. I think that integrated large-scale landscape approach where we're, where we're looking at that, where we're developing a suite of policies that, that include energy, that include agriculture, that include uh, land management and that certainly occur in the context of, of, of climate change uh, and climate mitigation uh, are really important, but I don't think that we're doing it very well. I'd like to thank Dr. Sebastian Thomas for discussing his research paper about blue carbon. 
In the next podcast episode of Noisemakers, I talk to Dr. Scott Wooldridge, a marine scientist, who discusses how impacts to the health of seagrasses are affecting dugong populations along the coast of North Queensland. So ears to the ground, everyone. Salty Wave Blue will be back soon.